Before we get started today, a quick reminder, we're looking for some extra feedback from you with our listener survey. This is your chance to help shape future episodes of our podcast and to potentially win a $25 Amazon gift card. You can find a link to the show notes of this podcast. Okay, now on to the episode. The first meeting was a catastrophe. We didn't agree on anything at all. The ladies were asking for land, and the men were strict about not making that concession. Jerome Kalibanya lives in Mazinzi, a village in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, quite close to the border with Rwanda. He was at a heated land rights meeting with his wife, Simire Muatoto. While it is technically legal for couples to co-own a home, in practice, men are usually the sole owners of land. This is because customary law here, or traditional community laws, often claim that married women cannot own property. A nonprofit called Women for Women International had organized this meeting. The purpose was to educate couples about the value in having women co-own land. They recruited the participants through other programs they had in the village, including a male allies project. That's how Jerome had heard about it. The first meeting was hard, but in the second session, his opinions started to change. In our customs, there are things that women don't do or were not doing in the past, like eating egg or chicken or drinking milk. These things were considered taboo. But when the men realized that that was the past, we understood that women could also have land rights, just like men. Jerome and Simire then decided that they would add Simire's name to their land title, and they wanted to tell their 12 children about it. In the end, their biggest obstacle to doing this was their eldest son, Naganu Demian-san. I was angry, and we argue a lot with my parents, asking why our mom should be given a land and not me, their eldest son. For Foreign Policy, I'm Rena Nainen. On today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, our last of the season, we look at how one program in the Democratic Republic of Congo worked with families to try to overcome long-standing cultural barriers to women owning land. The United States Agency for International Development, USAID, has been funding efforts to bring about more gender equity there and other parts of Africa. In the second part of our episode, I talked to Isabel Coleman, the deputy administrator of USAID. She explains why the Biden administration is doubling down funding towards gender programming and how USAID plans to invest that financing. But first, let's go back to the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, and this plan to try and reverse these deep-seated patriarchal traditions. About four years ago, Rachel Boketa began working on changing people's minds about something known as the land tenure system. The land tenure system is opaque and very complex. And then in Easter DRC where we work, it's further complicated by conflict, ongoing conflict out there. So, and all this compounded by low status of women 
they took women out of the picture, you know, like completely. So mobilizing community was a very difficult exercise, I have to say so, because, you know, it challenges all like the existing norms. Boketa is a country director for Women for Women International. That's a group dedicated to helping women living in places that have undergone devastating conflict. The DRC is such a place. And while war officially ended there 20 years ago, the past couple of decades have been tainted by weak governments and sporadic violence. This is especially true in the eastern part of the country, where more than 100 armed groups are believed to be currently operating. Fighting has resumed in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo between government troops and M23 fighters. The Congolese government has... Thousands of Congolese are continuing to flee from their homes. One reason there's so much conflict is because the DRC has massive natural resources. Buketa and her team believe that one way to stem this cycle of violence is to give women more economic agency, including over land. We did a thorough gender analysis that revealed to us that in Eastern DRC, land was an important income generation uh, source and also food production. And women do not have access to land because of all the customary law and the tradition and the social norms. Normally, uh, land belongs to men and the uh, male uh, firstborn sons inherit those. So that for us was a huge gap, you know, to tackle for the project. And we built our projects first to give women access to land and second to promote their rights and of course also fight gbv gender-based violence in relation to that so that's how the whole thing started Boketa decided to concentrate her efforts in the eastern drc where women have been particularly impacted by conflict and a lack of information People out there in the Eastern DRC, they don't know that now women don't need authorization to get uh, land title. So for them, it was still women cannot access land. They need marital authorization to do so and all these things. So bringing our project, trying to mobilize community, challenging the statu quo was very um, difficult. Boketa knew that if she wanted to make change, she needed allies. Community mobilization was key. Specifically, though, she needed men to join in and help with securing land rights for women. So she and her team set up to train men on how to convince their families, friends, and community members that women and girls' rights were important and that they had built trust with local leaders, including the head chief known as the king. The community really got involved and supported the program. We even had, you know, the the chief of the traditional chiefdom. It's called it's called the Moami. He even lower, you know, the price for women to get official land title. I remember I went with him in Nyangezi to deliver those land titles to to women. So, you know, when the king is involved, all others, like authorities or all other subjects in those communities got involved. How did you manage to convince the king that he should support this policy of allowing mothers to own land rights? 
You know, that's uh, all advocacy is about. So it started by a series of communication because that king himself, he lost his father when he was uh, six years old from what he told us. And then his mother was actually ruling the kingdom. And we told him, we say, if your mother could not have access to leadership, was not like allowed to rule the kingdom, it means your entire lineage, generation or family or your tribe would have lost the throne because you were the only male son and then you were only six years old. So that convinced him. And then he got involved. He was actually pushing for women's leadership. And then he's even calling us, you know, to uh, extend the project uh, to other communities so that we could change, you know, this low status of women, which is being transmitted from generation to generation. Can you explain why the sons were such an obstacle? The sons, the firstborn sons, they are like the lawful in uh, who inherits the land. So they were fighting their own mothers because for all the men that agreed to give a uh, land title to women, it was like they were taking away their inheritance. So they felt they were getting less of the pie, so they didn't want to share with their mothers. Exactly. All we had in our heads was women for women, was coming after the first son's inheritance. That's Naganu Damien-san, the eldest son you heard from at the top. He then went to a land rights project meeting, especially for sons. And it was hard to agree with that. But they didn't give up. They kept engaging with the sons and implored them to see things through their mother's perspective. We had to explain to them that when the mother gets their land, it's still for their own good because it has been shown, you know, with women getting the land, a plot of land, producing food, and then also producing other production for income generation that was helping the family. And then we explained to them about the, the rights that by the constitution, we are born equal, men and women. Women can also access land in the same way with men. So we are talking about their sisters, their mothers, and then their future wives. They also brought up something more serious to really drive the point home. There are practices where when the man is no more, the, his family can uh, spoliate everything that belonged to men and often leave women and the kids in the street. So it was critical to explain to those youth that when maybe uh, you are no, no more there, if your wife have access to your land, because it's the, the major like income generation you know, source, it means your kids will be secure even if you are not there. And I think that one was a part of what convinced them. The strategy worked well on the Ganu Demian-san. The most important thing I've learned through those meetings, I pictured myself as a parent 
and I realized that I can get also girls and have the rights to inherit from my goods. And then my mom, as well as my sisters, should have the same rights as men. And Ndango's mother? She didn't tell our producer much, but she was very happy about owning rights. I felt so good when my husband gave me that land. And I was so thankful to him for giving me a land where I could grow beans, potatoes, or cassava. Thanks to this land, our own, if I harvest beans or potatoes that I sell to the market, I can pay the school fees for the kids or buy some clothing for myself and take my kids to the hospital or for medical care or treat myself just from what I got from this field. Our thanks to the Kalibanya family for sharing their story with us, and special thanks to our DRC-based journalist, Francis Shok Muaze, who acted as our field producer for this segment. I'm happy we're ending this season with programs doing big things. The Women for Women International Project and DRC changed the minds of men and boys about women owning land. Women for Women was supported in their efforts with a grant from the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, The U.S. currently gives more money to international development than any other country in the world. After the break, you'll hear my conversation with USAID Deputy Administrator Isabel Coleman about how USAID is approaching gender equality. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainan. In our last interview for this season, we wanted to share a conversation that I had with USAID Deputy Administrator Isabel Coleman at Foreign Policy's Her Power Summit. This is an event all about women's leadership. Coleman shared with me what she thinks are the smartest ways to invest in women and girls around the world. When you're looking and applying sort of a gender lens to development, I know President Biden's new budget now calls for more than double, actually, money for gender programs in the previous year. Why is that? What do you think the White House is hoping to achieve? I think everybody in this room knows the why. The why has been documented and researched and written about for decades. When you invest in women and girls, it has such a positive Uh, impact not only on the girl child, but on her family, on her community, on her country, on the global economy. We've seen it, you know, across the board. Investing in women produces better health outcomes, it reduces fertility, it improves farmer yields. Mm -hmm. I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs 
almost 20 years ago called The Payoff from Women's Rights. Mm. And I, I don't, I don't want to spend time anymore talking yes. about why. Yes. So, but let's focus on the how. On the how. So what is the White House hoping to achieve and how will they do it? So in the fiscal year 23 budget request, as you noted, we have requested a a doubling of our um, funding for programs to invest in women and girls. I mean, what we're hoping to achieve is is much greater impact, you know, more than a doubling of impact. What does that mean when they say greater impact? Where would you believe that you and the White House would look at this and say, we took this money and it really paid off? Well, it really cuts across everything we do today. I mean, there's, you, can't, you, know, you, you can't just say, oh, this is our gender pot. You know, you, we find our gender money is in our agricultural spending. It's in our climate work. It's certainly in our educational work. We've just invested uh, $50 million in the World Bank's CARE initiative. The World Bank has estimated that some 600 million women are not in the workforce today because of lack of access to care, you know, whether it's for child care, elder care, whatever it may be. 75% of unpaid care in the world is done by women. So that's just one example. But, you know, certainly when we're looking at food security around the world, we know that the majority today of subsistence farmers are women, and women have lower productivity than men. If you can invest in women's productive capacities, and it could be literacy training, you know, at the earliest levels to improve their productivity, you're going to have increases in food security around the world. So it, it really is across the board on everything that we're doing. Can you point to what the USAID, what USAID has done in the space of women and girls where there's been some sort of transformative change? Oh, I mean, there's so many examples. Right now, USAID is supporting 12 million girls in primary school around the world. And that is just this year. Yeah. You know, for decades, we have invested in girls' education. And you've seen the gains. Bangladesh has seen enormous strides. The U.S. has invested heavily in women and girls empowerment and education and in Bangladesh and in countries around the world. So Egypt, you know, girls' education, mm-hmm. um, you've seen enormous strides in closing the gender gaps. Not that they have been fully closed, but you, you've seen a lot of progress. And USAID has really been behind a lot of those uh, U.S. government investments that have been made. You just returned from a, a trip to Niger, which there is explosive population growth. But it's fascinating. There's also been some investment in women's girls' education. Tell me a little bit about what you saw. Well, let me step back. And even uh, before I went to Niger, I had an amazing conversation with the foreign minister who was here, who was talking about his challenges that he faces. He said, I, I face three challenges, three crises. I face a climate crisis. Mm. The country is in the Sahel, and it's seen rapid desertification. It faces conflict in the north of the country and in the south, uh, across the country. And it's it's really conflict driven by a growing scarcity of resources. And then he took me by surprise, and he said, and my third crisis is child marriage. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's interesting to have a foreign minister talking about child marriage. Mm. And he said, look, I have a population of 26 million people. 
it is one of the fastest, I think it is the fastest growth rate, uh, fertility rate in the world uh, today. Wow. The, uh, a Nigerian woman is uh, likely to have seven children right now, which is fully one more child than the next highest, wow. which means that the population will double eight, every 18 years. And when you're looking at conflict and climate change, a doubling of your population puts enormous stresses. It's a source of opportunity, of course, but it also uh, puts an enormous stress on, on your systems or lack of systems. They don't have the ability to have all of their kids in school, and with such a fast-growing population, they have to invest, invest, invest. So it is a challenge. And, and girls, the girl child is so crucial to the gains that they want to make across the board. And they recognize that in Niger, 76% of girls are married before the age of 18, and a, a very large proportion are married before the age of 15, 14, 13. You have very young mm -hmm. ages of marriage. Girls leave school for a whole variety of reasons. There's no um, sanitation facilities yeah. for women. Um, for girls, it's, schools are a long distance. You know, they're, they're cultural factors. And when they leave school, they get married. Mm -hmm. And so one of the programs that we're doing in, in Niger is really trying to address that issue, those structural factors that really drive early marriage in, uh, in Niger. One country can't do it alone in this space. Obviously, you've got to have partnerships. Where do you feel that USAID has partnered, that's been partners or, or countries that have made a difference in this space? Well, <clears throat> USAID can't do it alone. You know, a country can't do it alone. USAID can't do it alone. It really has to um, be a concerted effort that involves leadership of a country. Niger, right now, its leadership is, is very dedicated to trying to improve the status of girls and women in the society. But it needs money. You, you've got for a country like Niger, you've, the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, is, is working there and really investing also in women and girls. You've got the World Bank there trying to invest in um, infrastructure and, and building schools. And, of course, you've got uh, USAID there and other donors there that are really trying to all pull in the same direction to help this country achieve its objectives. I find sometimes it's all, also the same when you're talking about diversity. When you're talking about gender issues... There's still this sense among policy leaders, you know, largely men, that feel this is sort of the feel-good thing. I've got to do this to check off the box for the U.S. or for the IMF or for the World Bank. Are you, do you find that sentiment? I know we talked about it's not so much the, the why anymore. How has tangible differences been, you know, happened to these countries that might, not be, I, um, might be on the fence about this? I have been working in this space for a very long time, and I've been writing about these issues for a very long time. And I can tell you that 20 years ago, when I would sit down with finance ministers or labor ministers, and I would talk about the low workforce participation rate of women in their economies, they'd say, oh, but you know, we have to find jobs for men first. Yeah. You know, women, they should stay home and take care yes. of their kids. They need jobs first. We can't even employ the men. How can we think about the women? And I would show them research where countries that had higher workforce participation rates of women had higher workforce participation rates for men, too. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's not zero-sum. Women create jobs for other women and for men. And you could see them thinking, okay? <laughs> Today, you have the, finance, the, the uh, foreign minister in Niger talking about child marriage. It, that is one of his priorities. I think there's been so much research done 
looking at, for example, the work that McKinsey has done, if you can bring women up to the same level of equality, economic opportunity and, and education, all sorts of things, around the world, it's $28 trillion of additional global GDP. Mm-hmm. That's 26%, more than a quarter of the world's economy. And the World Bank has done similar exercises looking at closing the gap in uh, education between boys and girls. If you could really bring girls up to the same level as boys, over their lifetime, they would earn somewhere between, produce somewhere between 15 and $30 trillion more over their lifetime. These aren't small numbers. These are huge numbers. And I think that people in leadership positions in countries now much better understand this is not just checking a box to make the United States feel good. This is critical to their economic development. It is critical to their outcomes that they're looking for. We know it's a human rights issue. It's also an economic issue. Final question. Uh, I know we've got to wrap up shortly here, but when you look at everything you've outlined for USAID, the policies, the the review that you've just conducted, where do you believe you can see the most change in the coming years of this administration? I think that the harsh reality is that COVID was a huge setback for women and girls. You saw girls leave school, and there's a whole generation of girls. They're never going back. Mm -hmm. You saw women leave the workforce, and they're really going to lose years, if not decades, off their productive ability to participate in the economy. And I think that the focus and push that that we have is to try to reverse those setbacks and really turbocharge the opportunities for women and girls. So it's doubling down again on education, on uh, the care economy as an enabler for helping girls and women uh, participate more fully and realize their full capacities. Of course, food security is one of our highest priorities right now because of Russia's terrible um, invasion of Ukraine and and destruction of the world's breadbasket in, in many ways. And making sure that the investments we're making in, um, in food security and, and really down at you know, the subsistence farming level are very much focused on women too, we're, we're, we're likely to see the biggest gain. So, and climate. I mean, yes. they're, they're, you know, I haven't even talked much about that, but making sure that even just, I mentioned, you know, increasing women's agricultural productivity allows less tilling of land and less use of fertilizer. I mean, the the positive spillover effects are huge, but across the board, education, economic opportunities, climate change, and then also the legal environment. You know, we continue to work with brave civil society actors around the world to really push on closing the legal gaps that exist for women. Yeah, food security, uh, climate legal issues. You're you're so right to raise that. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you so much, Isabel Coleman, with USAID for your work decades in this space and, um, and holding people accountable on this. So thank you. Thank you. The interview was filmed live at Foreign Policy's Her Power Summit in Washington, D.C., at an annual gathering of leaders defending women's rights and ensuring greater equity and inclusion around the world. You can email podcast at foreignpolicy.com if you'd like to hear more about the next Her Power event, which is also available virtually. To close out this third season, 
I actually wanted to bring back Rachel Boqueta, Women for Women International's country director in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I felt like the end of our conversation would be the perfect end to this episode and this season of our podcast. To women watching and to people listening who really want to help change the way we view gender and legislation and create change for a better future, what's your advice to people who are are fighting to implement change? Yes, you know, sometimes people uh, look for big things. By big things, I I mean like law amendments or going to parliament, discuss. But what I can say to women listening and to their husbands or the males in the community or to everyone involved, that it starts at the household. In that context of Eastern DRC, if each household can start, you know, by promoting women's rights, that's how it will change and it will be sustainable. How beautiful. What an incredible closing thought. I'm Rena Ninen, and you've been listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Laura Rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer, Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Maria Jimena Aragon, Claudia Tady, and Dan Efron. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that's it for the third season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm grateful that you all could join us. We'll have a few bonus episodes soon, and our next season will be out later this year. Until then, take care.